Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Emperor Hui Di of the Jing Dynasty and what does he have to do with contemporary Taiwanese politics. Like in many other countries, for seemingly forever now, in Taiwan, every day, the government holds a press conference to discuss the latest COVID case numbers and policies. In Taiwan, the show happens at about 2 p.m. every afternoon. And the star of the show is Chen Shizhong, Minister of Health and Welfare. Now, let me back up for a minute just to catch you up on the very basics of Taiwanese politics. For those of you who don't know, there are two main political parties, the Democratic Progressive Party, or the DPP, and the Kuomintang, uh, which was what used to be called the Nationalist Party, or the KMT for short. The KMT ran the Republic of China back when it still had control of mainland China before escaping over here when the Chinese Communist Party won the Civil War back in 1949. The KMT was uh, then in charge of Taiwan under an authoritarian system before Taiwan democratized. And the KMT became one of two main parties in a multi-party system competing in open elections. On the question of relations with China, the DPP essentially says, you know what, let's just be independent. What has China ever done for us? We owe them nothing. And nowadays, all they do is try to intimidate us and try to impose their will upon us. And we are a free people, after all. It is time to be our own country. Or, to quote the American Declaration of Independence, when, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinion of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. The KMT, because it came from mainland China, and because it represents many of the people it brought over and their descendants, tends to say, well, hang on just a minute. Our traditions and identity stretch back thousands of years. No, we don't like the party in power in Beijing, and we don't agree with them. Hey, after all, we fought a civil war against them. But let's not be too hasty in severing such ancient ties. Or, to quote Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union, when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels 
of our nature. All right. So anyway, right now, the DPP is in power, and the once dominant KMT is the opposition party. That means that Minister of Health and Welfare Chen Shizhong is a member of the DPP. And the other day, something very interesting happened. A certain KMT legislator, criticizing Minister Chen's COVID leadership, compared him to Emperor Huidi of the Jing Dynasty. At the next 2 p.m. press conference, a reporter asked Chen what he thought about that. Minister Chen immediately said something along the lines of, "Well, surely I am not that bad." I thought this was a very interesting exchange because, well, Emperor Huidi of the Jing Dynasty is frankly a pretty obscure historical figure, and to be quite honest, I had to look him up to be sure that I was thinking of the same person that they were talking about. So. Who was Emperor Huidi of the Jing, and what was even the Jing Dynasty? We've touched on the Jing Dynasty in passing a couple of times before on this podcast, although the terms get a little confused and a little confusing for good historical reason, because well, the story gets pretty confusing. In one episode, I talked about the Three Kingdoms era that followed the fall of the Han Dynasty. In the episode on Mulan, I mentioned that her legend originated in the Wei Jing North and South dynasties, which followed the Three Kingdoms. So, basically, this was what happened. Late during the Three Kingdoms era, the Northern Kingdom, called the Wei, came to be increasingly dominated by a family surnamed Sima. Starting with a man named Sima Yi, who rose to become Chancellor of the Wei. In the Three Kingdoms episode, I talked about how Zhuge Liang was reputedly the smartest man in China in that time period. Well, Sima Yi was one of a handful of characters from that time who could go toe to toe against the great Zhuge Liang. Eventually, the Wei won. And destroyed the other two kingdoms, ending the Three Kingdoms era, to establish the Wei Dynasty. But by then, the Sima family had so dominated politics in the Wei that pretty much as soon as the Wei supposedly won, the Sima family stepped in and usurped the throne. But by this time, the Sima family itself was two generations removed. From the brilliant Sima Yi, indeed, the man who ultimately performed the, the usurpation was Sima Yan, the grandson of Sima Yi. He declared that his new dynasty would now be called the Jing, and he would be known as Emperor Wu Di of the Jing. Sima Yan then made his son Sima Zhong the crown prince, the future Emperor Hui Di of the Jing. But the funny thing was, everyone thought that the Crown Prince Sima Zhong was, and I quote, quite stupid. One historian commented that the man was practically a wooden puppet. Even the emperor was concerned that his own son might simply be too stupid 
to manage the affairs of state. The annals from the time record that Emperor Wu Di several times gave his son essentially IQ tests, and Sima Zhong would have failed had not his cronies helped him cheat. Eventually, in 290 A.D., Emperor Wu Di died, and Sima Zhong ascended the throne as Emperor Hui Di. And the writing that was on the wall came to pass. Hui Di was simply not up to the task of governing. Soon enough, eight of his cousins rose up in what came to be called the Rebellion of the Eight Princes. Which very nearly destroyed the Jing Dynasty, and certainly hollowed it out. And soon after that, the mass migration of peoples across Eurasia, that in Europe was causing the Roman Empire so much headache, came to affect China as well. A series of quote-unquote barbarian tribes watched the rebellion of the eight princes unfold. And saw their opportunity. In previous episodes, we talked about the Shunnu people and how the Han Dynasty finally defeated them. Well, a branch of the Shunnu stayed on the Chinese frontier as a vassal. Now they led the charge and launched an invasion, to be followed by four other races. One of these was the Xianbei. Which in our Mulan episode I mentioned was likely the ethnic group to which Mulan belonged. The five races between them would establish a series of sixteen kingdoms throughout northern China. And you wonder why the story gets confusing. The Jin Dynasty, meanwhile, having lost control of half the country, decided to flee south of the Yangtze River. A whole generation of Jing aristocracy simply packed up and left. The Jing would never regain the north, but it maintained control of the south for another century or so until its final destruction in 420 A.D. And what happened to Emperor Hui Di? You ask. Well, after the rebellion of the eight princes, after the Shunnu already invaded what is now the province of Sichuan. In 304 A.D., after the Xianbei people sacked that famous ancient capital Chang'an, which is now Xi'an, back in 306. After that, in 307 A.D., in a palace somewhere, Emperor Huidi ate a piece of cake. The cake was poisoned, and so he died. Who poisoned him? We're not sure. All right, so that's the fate of Emperor Huidi of the Qing. That's his story, and he became synonymous for a foolish ruler, an incompetent one. And that's what the KMT legislator meant when he called Minister Chen Shizhong Emperor Huidi of the Qing. But isn't it terribly interesting? At least I think it is. That he would make such a comparison. Isn't it equally interesting that Chen immediately understood the reference? Imagine the political discourse, the equivalent of it, 
in another country? I am not sure that I can. My other country of New Zealand, founded in 1840, is obviously far too young to have historical references going back that far. In theory, I suppose, New Zealand politicians could refer to history from the mother country. That would be Britain. But they wouldn't, because no one in New Zealand knows enough British history to understand such references. Even in the UK itself, I suppose British politicians may refer to their kings and prime ministers of the past, your Gladstone and your Disraeli, your Pitt Senior and Junior, your Lord Salisbury, your many kings Henry, and your one other Queen Elizabeth. But these are recent figures compared to Emperor Huidi. A Western politician would have to refer to a Roman figure if he is to be more or less contemporary with Emperor Huidi, Constantine the Great, perhaps, or his nephew Julian the Apostate, or uh, somewhat earlier figures such as Philip the Arab or Aurelian, the restitutor or beast, the restorer of the world. But would an American politician ever do this? Would a French or a German one? Isn't the Roman Empire simply far too distant for modern Western citizens? All right, during the Trump presidency, I did hear some American commentators compare him to Emperor Nero, who famously fiddled while Rome burned. But that's one of the most obvious and hackneyed of tales from ancient Rome. Emperor Huidi of the Jing, well, he's, he's much more obscure. He was more like a Commodus, or even a Pertinax, the hapless rich old man who in 193 AD thought he could buy Roman emperorship with no more than cold hard cash. I cannot imagine American politicians accusing each other of resembling Commodus or Pertinax. I cannot imagine the average American voter understanding what that even means. But in Taiwan, yeah, you are supposed to understand the reference to a figure from the 3rd and 4th century. Even while the two major political parties of Taiwan disagree vehemently on the meaning of their cultural heritage, even when one of those parties believes it is high time that we separate ourselves from that heritage, it remains par for the course to draw on it. And if you cannot understand these references, if you cannot access that historical and cultural heritage, then you cannot fully participate or even understand the political discourse here. Well, the good news is, that's what I'm here for. To help to lift the veil, if only a little, to help some of you understand a little better what the hell it is that we're going on about over here. All right, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.